Well, today's text is James 1, verses 13 through 18. And the title of my message this morning is When Testing Becomes Temptation. On the morning of September 11th, 2001, four infamous flights left the East Coast in the United States to fly to the West. None of those flights arrived at its intended destination. American Airlines Flight 11 departed Boston. Its destination, Los Angeles. It crashed into the North Tower of the World Trade Center. 92 were killed on board, over 1,300 in the North Tower. American Flight 77 departed Washington Dulles. Its destination, Los Angeles. It crashed into the Pentagon. 64 passengers killed, 124 in the Pentagon. United Flight 175 departed Boston. Its destination, Los Angeles once again. It crashed into the South Tower of the World Trade Center. 65 passengers dead, over 600 in the South Tower. United Airlines Flight 93 departed Newark. For San Francisco, it crashed into the fields of Stony Creek Township in Pennsylvania. All 40 passengers were killed. What did each plane have in common? As you're well aware, they were all hijacked by terrorists. No passenger lived. No one made it to their intended destination. This morning, we're going to be speaking about another type of terrorist that left undetected will hijack the very means that God has ordained for you to take you from that place of immaturity to maturity, from that place of doubt to faith, from that place of sin to ultimate perfection in Christ. So what are these means that God has chosen to mature you and to perfect you? Those means are called trials. The very trials that we have been studying here in this first chapter of the book of James. And we all know quite well, don't we, that trials can become temptations. And temptations given into, will hijack the very trials that God has brought into your life for good. So friends, here's the very sobering truth right out front here this morning. Growth is not inevitable in trials or times of testing. It is possible to squander and yes, to waste our trials. See, perhaps you're here this morning and you are facing the same testing, the same trials that have plagued you for years. Perhaps you would say, my plane, Corey, is in a holding pattern right now. For others of you, you would say, I am right now a hostage to my sin. Perhaps others would say, Corey, I'm not only in a hostage, my plane's going down. And for others of you, it may not be quite so severe 
But you're encountering trials right now. You are encountering, encountering tribulation. We, we could say turbulence. And what you need this morning is simply some stabilizing wisdom. We're going to get that this morning, I believe, from God's word. So whatever the case you may find yourself in, don't waste your trials. Or to paraphrase James in our text, don't be deceived in your time of temptation. Or in other words, don't let your trials be hijacked by the enemy within. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we do pray this morning that you would shed your light of your word upon us and our hearts. Lord, we're asking for clarity this morning in the midst of the very trials and testings that we are going through. Word of God, we ask that you would shine this morning. Yes, to expose our hearts, but also to show us your goodness in the midst of of these very trials. Why? That we may have hope this morning, that we may have confidence as we withstand the onslaught, the onslaught of the trials that are before us, that we may be perfect and mature, that we may arrive at your intended destination for us. We pray. Amen. Let us read our text this morning, James 1, starting with verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. Church will find our key verse this morning in our text. I believe it's verse 16. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. James here is speaking to Christians. Brothers, we could add sisters as well. Those who are encountering very real trials, as we have studied throughout this first chapter of James. And verse 16 is the bridge. It is the link between verses 13 and 15 and what is to follow verses 17 and 18. In other words, James is saying this. When you encounter trials or times of testing, don't be deceived as to the source of your temptation. That's verses 13 through 15. Neither be deceived as to the solution to your temptation. Verses 17 and 18. You see, it's so easy to think that the source of our temptation and our problems lie outside of us. He made me do it. She made me do it. God made me do it. And that the solution to our problems are within us. Somehow I, I have to fix it. You see, James here says just the opposite. Friends, we cannot confuse the source of our temptation 
with a solution. James is saying, don't be deceived. If you confuse the source of your temptation with the solution, your plane, your trial will be hijacked. So as it says in your notes, two simple points this morning. Don't be deceived. That's number one, the source of your temptation. And number two, the solution to your temptation. Point one, back to verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. James begins this passage by making it very clear where the source of our temptation lies. And it does not lie with God. You see, apparently some that James is writing to were blaming God for the very temptation and sin. The rationale probably went something like this. I mean, if God is bringing testing and trial into my life to perfect me, isn't then God the root of our temptation? Am I then really at fault? This is God's doing, not mine. Have you ever thought that way? Yeah, sure you have. Sure you have. See, the blame game has been around since the very beginning of mankind. As you recall, as we've read in Genesis 3, what Adam, what Adam said to God when he was confronted by the Lord in the garden. What did he say? Genesis 3, verse 11. We read these classic words to Adam. Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to me to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. In one swift reply, Adam implicates Eve and ultimately God for the reason for his disobedience. In one fell swoop of deception, the plane is hijacked. Instead of life, death is birthed. And so it's been ever since. As one person has said, to err is human. To blame it on God is even more human. Passing the buck, the blame is as natural as it gets. Well, perhaps you may say, well, Corey, I know better not to blame God for my temptations and my trials. Really? We may not say it that way, but isn't often the way we can think? Perhaps you said, or perhaps you just thought, but God arranged it this way. God gave me this harsh, unforgiving father, thus justifying your lies and blaming God. God gave me this unresponsive wife, thus justifying your unfaithfulness. God has not really made me wealthy like others. Instead of giving me wealth, he has given me poverty to justify your thievery, the little lies on your IRS tax returns. But I think the next we're even more susceptible to this next illusion. God made me this way. God made me passionate and zealous, thus justifying your unrighteous anger. God made me shy, 
thus justifying your cowardice or selfish inward focus. God made me with an attraction to the same sex. You get the picture. James is saying as clearly as possible in our text, verse 13, God himself tempts no one. In other words, God is not a fault. Why? Because God cannot be tempted with evil. Literally, in this text, it says God is untemptable. In other words, he is unsusceptible to evil. God has never tempted us to sin because he cannot. It is a moral impossibility according to God's very holy nature and his very hatred of evil and sin. But while God doesn't tempt us, he does test us. And that is clear throughout Scripture and in your life and mine as well. It's interesting to note that in our passage this morning, that the Greek word, the original word here in our text, for the word trial in verse 12 is the very same root word that is translated tempted in verse 13. So it begs the question this morning, what is the difference between a trial and a temptation? What is the difference between being tested and being tempted? Let me propose it's the difference between the external and the internal. God may bring the external pressure, what we may call the heat of our circumstances, to bear upon our lives. But there is no temptation without a corresponding internal pressure to give way to that temptation. And that internal pressure, as I'll talk about in a few minutes, lies within us, not God. You see, I can squeeze the trigger of my garden hose, all right? But no water's going to be coming out if the water isn't turned on, if there's no water in the hose, if there's nothing inside. And that leads to the next point. Don't be deceived. The source of your temptation doesn't lie with God, but it lies inside. It lies with us. Until we get that, our plane will be headed in the wrong direction. So where does it lie? Squarely with us. We see that clearly in verse 14. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed. By what? By his own desire. Catch that? By his own desire. What is James talking about here when he says desire? He's talking about the evil within. Those evil impulses. Those illicit desires. Those worldly passions. I think you know what I'm talking about. It's a desire to look. When I say, whatever you do, don't look at that. What do we want to do? We want to look. As one of my children soberly confessed the other day, Daddy, even when you're kind and discipline me for anger, I just get more angry inside. Can you relate? The Apostle Peter puts it this way. In 1 Peter 2.11, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions, it could also be translated, desires of the flesh, 
which wage war against your soul. What wages war against our soul? Our passion, our fleshly desires, our sinful nature, the enemy of our soul. Okay. Got it? We're sinful. But how about Satan? Doesn't he have a role in this? Satan made me do it. Well, James doesn't deny a role for Satan in temptation. In fact, we're going to talk about it in James 4. But what James is communicating, what God is communicating through his book this morning is he wants you to take the individual responsibility for your sin, ownership for your sin. You see, Satan isn't your greatest enemy. There's something more sinister, if it could be, that lives within you and me. To quote commentator J.A. Motyer, Were there no Satan, there would still be wickedness. Were every prospect pleasing, human nature would still be vile. The enemy is not only within the camp, within the heart, the enemy is the heart itself. Friends, stop blaming God. Stop blaming others. Stop blaming Satan. God is saying to us this morning, know who your enemy is. In other words, look into the mirror and don't be deceived. In his intriguing book, entitled Son of Hamas, Musab Hassan Yosef, the son of a founder of the terrorist organization Hamas, shares that he became a secret Israeli double agent and how he became a convert to Christianity. And he shares this fascinating statement. For years, excuse me, for years, I had struggled to know who my enemy was. And I had looked for enemies outside of Islam and Palestine, but I suddenly realized that the Israelis were not my enemies. Neither was Hamas, nor my uncle, nor the kid who beat me with the butt of his M16. I understood that enemies were not defined by nationality, religion, or color. I understood that we all share the same common enemies, greed, pride, and all the bad ideas and the darkness of the devil that live inside us, i.e. the heart. Friends, do you know who your enemy is? In your marriage, when rocks are being thrown, or grenades are being lobbed, when mortar fire is being exchanged between you and your roommate. Do you know then who your enemy is? It's not your spouse. It's not your roommate. It's not your boss. It's your heart. You see, the trials may change, but your enemy never will. According to scripture, he's hiding right here. Not here, 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 there, there, there. Right here. And secondly, do you know the enemy's tricks 
a betrayed. You see, no one recognized Ziad Jarrah as a terrorist when he boarded United Flight 93 on September 11th. After all, Jarrah attended Christian schools. Ouch. And he had been quoted as saying that he loved living in America. His motto, according to his personal fight trainer, was find ways to blend in with your opponent and control him. And that's exactly what he did. And it's true today with our evil desires and our worldly passions. Not only should we know the source of our temptation, we must know the course of our temptation as well. Let's look at verse 14. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. See, James here is using two metaphors to help us out. He's using, firstly, a fishing metaphor to describe how we can be hooked by our sin. Secondly, he is using a birth or birthing metaphor to describe the progression of temptation and sin in our lives. In both cases, our desire must be enticed or seeded by lies, by falsehood. In other words, we must be deceived. Why else would a fish come out from the safety of his lair? Why else would desire risk an unplanned pregnancy if we're not for the promise it thought it could gain? You see, deception isn't just swirling around us. Deception is within us. We looked at verse 14. It says, lured, enticed. You see, to be lured and to be enticed is to be dragged away in our mind. It's to be enticed by our affections. What happens when you drop a naked hook in the water? You're not likely going to catch anything, are you? The hook has to be discovered and disguised. The hook has to be made to look attractive. It has to be decorated by a worm, a fly, a spinner, or a plug, as my fishermen tell me. It has to be alluring. The bait doesn't have to just only invite. No, the bait has to seduce. This is how the art of the hook works. Our minds check out. You minds ever check out? Step one. Number two, our infections, our affections, not affections, our affections are entangled by our imagination, our mind's eye. What if what happened on the 6 o'clock news happened to my child? What if my children were abducted or killed? What if I just walked away from this marriage? What if I just kept a little money to myself and told no one? What if I just took one more glance? You see, the enemy within, our flesh, wants to fix our imagination on something that will lead us into the clutches of sin. 
until we start plotting, until we start scheming to make that fantasy a reality. You know what happens? Soon enough, that fantasy becomes reality. And God becomes distant. God becomes unreal. Welcome to the deception of sin. Welcome to the arts of the hook. Courtesy of James, chapter 1. Courtesy of God himself. So how do you know when you've been hooked? Well, author Chris Lungard, in his excellent book entitled The Enemy Within, says this. When your imagination can't turn off the flesh's images of evil, you're hooked. When you can't stop thinking about how Bill, the new guy in marketing, respects you so much more than your husband of seven years, you're hooked. When you stay up late every night trying to balance your budget and always end up toying with the idea of cutting your tithe in half, you're hooked. When your wife has been asking for a sewing table for 18 years and you always put it off because you couldn't justify the extravagant expense, yet every evening on the way home, you slow down as you pass the Mazda dealer and imagine yourself in the British racing green Miata convertible. Guess what? You got it. You're hooked. But you may say, it's one thing to think it. It's another thing to do it. I may think those things, but I would never actually do them. So says the deceived sinner. Some of you this morning, are so used to just letting your thoughts run wild, to let your imagination run wild. That's like second nature. More aptly, it's your sinful nature. And your trial that God has ordained for you, those pressures, that time of testing, is being hijacked. May God, in this passage, arrest your imagination. May he arrest your vain imaginings right now. Why? Look at the second metaphor. James tells us that if we cease to resist, if we then begin to buy into those lies, into those very vain imaginings, what happens? Sin is birthed. Without repentance, sin grows and matures. A hardening takes place that leads to the enslavement of sin. It's called death. Death and destruction. That was the goal of each terrorist who boarded those planes on 9-11. And it's the goal of your very flesh. This is the art of the hijack. Well, I realize that's heavy stuff. <laughs> we got some good news for you coming up right now. We're about to turn the corner here. Just as growth in trials is not inevitable, neither is sin in temptation. Please don't miss this third point. I know your second point there in your notes. Especially those right now, those of you who may be in the throes of temptation. Perhaps you just feel guilty right now because you are dealing with the same temptation that you dealt with last year, last month, last week, yesterday, and last hour. Now, even though you haven't given in, even though you are fighting right now this morning, you feel guilty by association. 
I believe the Lord, through his scripture this morning, wants to use this very birthing metaphor to let you know that temptation itself is not sin. Sin is sin. Know that temptation itself is not sin. Read again verse 15. The desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. Temptation in and of itself is not sinful, my friends. Only when it conceives, i.e. the consent of the will is given. In other words, when you give in or enter in to that temptation. Douglas Moo writes, Christian maturity is not indicated by the infrequency of temptation, but by the infrequency of succumbing to temptation. Friends, there is a difference. You see, Christ, as fully God, yet fully man, knew temptation in his humanity. We read in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, that Christ was tempted, what? In every way. In every way. And yet, he did not sin. Friends, are you, are you surprised this morning? Are you dismayed at your temptation? How many times I am? How many times I am surprised when that alarm goes off in the early morning? And I think of 20 reasons not to get up, not to pray, not to read the Word of God, and not to go to Friday morning prayer. Why am I surprised when I go by the refrigerator at 8 p.m. at night and Moose Tracks ice cream is crying out for me? It's mooing. I can hear it move from within the freezer. Why am I so surprised? Why are you surprised? When you're trying to get a project done, and all you can think about is checking your BlackBerry, your iPhone, or the Facebook, your Facebook. It's calling your name. There's a text waiting for me, and it's killing you. Why are you surprised that you want to steal another look at that image or woman? You see, friends, temptations can be minimized. They can be successfully fought but they're not going to go away here on earth. These tempting trials, I realize they're not pleasant. Can I tell you, these trials, these times of testing, they're a gift. They are a gift to us. Not only do they show us what's in our hearts, but they lead us and point us to a Savior and our need for a Savior. Church, there is hope this morning. There is a solution to your temptation and trials that does not come from within but comes from without. And that solution is found in verses 17 and 18. You see, God this morning, even through this word, may have already grabbed your attention. May have used some of those illustrations to grab your attention. But he did so to bring you to this point right here. Our goal this morning is not simply to identify the enemy. No, our goal is to kill the enemy. And thus we have verse 17 and 18. Let me read again. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. I'm not sure about you, but at first blush, when I read these two verses... They seem a little bit unrelated, or at least unexpected. 
based on what we just shared. What is James saying in these two last verses? I believe, friends, that he's addressing our very deception and thinking that the antidote, the answer to the problem somehow lies within us and somehow the source lies outside of us. The deception that says God is the source rather than the solution, rather than the answer to our tempting and tri- temptations and trials. You see, God does not tempt us to evil. God is not trying to tempt you this morning, trying to trap you into evil. God did not send evil your way. He has sent a Savior. And that's what these final two verses tell us. Why state this? Because in times of trials and temptations, we are prone to doubt God's goodness. And secondly, we're prone to forget the gospel. That the solution to our temptations and trials comes, A, from God himself. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from where? From above, coming down from the Father. God, who gives every good and perfect gift, is good. Who is his Father? The Father of lights, from whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. God, who gives every good and perfect gift, is not only good, he is also unchanging. And James wants you to know this morning, God wants you to know this morning, that he is good and he does not change. Oh, we change, don't we? In the face of trials and temptations, we often turn, we often doubt in our unbelief. Just as it says in James 1.6, but God never changes. We may go from faithfulness to fickleness, but God never changes. Why? Because he is good, and he is good all the time. God in his unchanging goodness and faithfulness, faithfulness is committed to helping you in these very times of testings and trials. God is committed to seeing your plane land in Los Angeles, in California, in the promised land. Why? Because God wants you to pass the test. Do you believe that? God wants you to pass the test. How did I know that? James 1.12, which we read two weeks ago. We concluded our sermon with that. It says this, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. Catch this. Which God has promised to those who love him. You see, God has demonstrated his goodness and he has secured this promise with two good and perfect gifts. Number one, he's given us his light and number two, he's given us his life. Number one, his light. We see in this text that he's called the father of lights. This phrase most likely refers to God's wisdom and goodness as our creator, as the one who hung the stars and the stars in its place. I think there's more here as well. The very God whose light is manifested by the sun by day and the stars by night. That very light he has shown in your hearts. The Apostle Paul says it well in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts 
to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. In every trial, in every temptation, God is committed to shining His light in your hearts and exposing all darkness and exposing every deception. God has sent His light into your heart to expose sin. But not just that. He has sent His light into your heart to expose a Savior. And His name is Jesus, the light of the world. That, my friends, is good news. Jesus is the only air marshal we'll ever need. The only one. In every trial, in every temptation, God wants to reveal His Son and His Savior to you. Oh, He wants to reveal His Son who came to die for you, to redeem you from the penalty of sin, but also to reveal His Son who He's given you that the power of sin may be broken in your life. And he has given these tests to remind us, to show us his glorious Savior. I pray he's doing that right now, that he's shining his divine flashlight into your hearts, exposing perhaps lies that you've bought into, where you've been duped, exposing the deception of the enemy within. Why? That you may come and cling to your Savior and that you may pass the test for which he is given. Verse 18 says this. Not only has he given us his life, he's given us, excuse me, his light. He's given us his very life as well. He's not only committed to us passing the test, he has secured us passing that test through his redemption. Verse 18. Of his own will, he brought us forth. There's that birthing imagery again. By the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. What is this word of truth that James is talking about? It's the means by which God uses to bring people to new life. In every instance of this phrase being used in the New Testament, word of truth, It refers to the gospel. Here we find the code phrase for the gospel in the New Testament. You can jot down Colossians 1, 5 through 6 as one shining example. Look at the beginning of verse 18. He has brought us forth by the word of truth. Look how it begins. Of his own will. This literally could be translated, having made his decision. You see, God in his grace chose every Christian, every believer, every recipient of his salvation. God made the decision to save you, to save me. God the Father, before you were even born, made the decision to land your plane in the promised land. And he's going to do it. And what did that mean? It meant sending his very own son, coming down to earth personally to defeat the terrorist and hijacker of our soul. He did it by sending his son to die upon a cross, to pay the penalty and take the punishment for our sin. Why? So sin would be defeated, 
so Satan would be defeated and death would be defeated on the cross. My friends, that is the gospel. Oh, you need not be victims this morning. If you have not placed your trust in Jesus Christ this morning, you can. His death and his resurrected life can be yours. But it means this, that God is calling you to repent, to repent of your sin, of your collaboration with the enemy, of the terrorist of your soul, and to follow Christ as the captain of your soul. If this is true of you, if you are a Christian today, if you've been saved by Jesus Christ, you are part of what James calls the first fruits, the pledge, the promise of God's redemptive plan. His plan that will not fail. You know, God is on a worldwide reclamation project, don't you? To redeem his creation, to make all things new. And if you're a Christian this morning, you are a pledge, you're the surety, you are the guarantee that God's plan will not fail. Those he redeemed, he will redeem, he will land the plane. No hijacker can thwart God's redemptive plan in here on earth and in your life. No terrorist will prevail. Every plan, every plane will arrive at its intended destination. That includes you, it includes me, it includes every believer in Christ Jesus. So the bottom line, don't be deceived, friends. If you have new life in Christ, if you've been born again, you can fight temptation with hope and with confidence this morning. Why? Because the God who saved you is the God who's committed to your sanctification as well. The God who saved you will sanctify you. You see, God doesn't just choose you. He doesn't make the decision before you're born, before the foundations of this earth to save you. He made the decision to sanctify you as well, that you may withstand the tests that you are now facing, as daunting as they may be. We read these glorious words in Romans 8, verses 29. Speaking of God, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined, catch this, predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. That's passing the test in order that he might be the firstborn, i.e. the firstfruits, among many brothers. Oh, this is not a hope. This is not a confidence based on our own abilities to resist sin. But it's a confidence and a hope rooted in the gospel of Jesus Christ and his divine goodness as revealed to the gospel. We can fight and defeat the enemies. We can have hope of victory in our very trials this morning. And it's God's very testing, it's His very trials that teach us how to fight. That fight of faith. At the beginning, in the introduction, I shared with you what all four planes had in common on 9-11. But there was one difference when it came to United Flight 93. As newspaper columnist Dennis Roddy explains, what, make, what made United Flight 93 different was a decision reached somewhere over the skies of western Pennsylvania 
after passengers learned on cell phones that they were likely to be flown into a building as the fourth in a quartet of suicide attacks. Next paragraph, one line. They decided to fight. That was the difference. So in closing, have you decided to fight? The enemy has been identified. His course of action has been revealed. The solution, the antidote to the temptation has been revealed in and through Christ Jesus, our Redeemer. So when trials and temptations come, you can say no to the hijacker of your trials and of your soul. And when face the temptation to sin, you can say, as Todd Beamer did, on United Flight 93, let's roll. With that in mind, let us pray now. Worship team, you can come forward. Dear Lord, many of us this morning, I realize, may feel battered and bruised in the temptations and the trials that we have faced. But Lord, help us to refocus our gaze this morning, to look upward, to look to our Savior, to look to you, the Father of lights, the creator of the world who descended to redeem us, to save us. Not only from our sin, but to save us into yourself. That we may be free now to live for you. Free from the bondage of sin. Free from its death and destruction. Free to worship you. So Lord, place that in our hearts now, even now as we sing. That when temptations, trials and temptations that we may bear under the weight and we may experience your victory in and through Christ as we pray. Amen.